that you make a statement today and then whenever that outcome comes, you look really foolish because you missed it bad. Reality looks nothing like your forecast. You ever done that? Well, let me give you some examples of people who, who made some some rather large misstatements in the past. In 1840, it was said that anyone traveling at the speed of 30 miles per hour would surely suffocate. Now, I suffocate at 30 miles per hour, but it's not because of the speed. It's because of the lack of speed. And uh, my mouth starts going really fast when I'm behind somebody driving 30. At least drive the speed limit. That's, that's a personal pet peeve. Um, in 1878, it was said that electric lights are unworthy of any serious consideration. When's the last time in the middle of the night your electricity's gone off? You give serious consideration to electricity when that happens, don't you? I mean, most of the time we just go and flip a switch. We don't worry about it. But uh, we, we get really uncomfortable when we don't have that electricity. In 1939, popular mechanics said that computers in the future may weigh as little as 1.5 tons. Now, my laptop is kind of old, but it only weighs about 10 pounds. You know, nowadays they got them like 5 pounds and 3 pounds or whatever. Mine's a 10 pound, and, and it gets heavy carrying it through the airport and stuff like that. But 1.5 tons. IBM, one of the leading makers of, of computers, and Thomas Wilson said in 1943, I think there is a world market in the future for perhaps five computers. I may have five in my house in the next few years, you know, because my kids are coming up and they're like, Dad, we need a computer in our room, that type of deal. Music professional. David Sarnoff said this, The wireless music box has no imaginable commercial value. Why would anyone pay for a message to be sent to no one in particular? He was talking about the radio. Are there any vehicles today made without radios? No, I mean, he missed that one bad. An expert once told, uh, once said that the soft cookie was a bad idea. Quote, a report shows that America likes crispy cookies, not the soft kind you make. You know who they were talking to? Mrs. Fields. He was talking to Mrs. Fields. She kind of showed him wrong, didn't she? Um... The DECA company once wrote the Beatles and said, we don't like your sound and guitar music is on the way out. You didn't know that, did you, David? (laughs) Donald, Wes, you know, Keith, you guys didn't know that, you know, 40 years ago. (laughs) Well, but it is a guitar. It is a guitar. FedEx CEO and, and founder Fred Smith first developed the idea for this innovative air freight company while he was a student at Yale University. But his professor was not impressed. The paper Smith turned in outlining the concept earned him a C. Thirty years later, FedEx is the world's largest express transportation company with 128,000 employees and just a mere $7 billion in capital. Not a good idea, was it? The Bible tells us in Proverbs that without vision, the people perish. Now, I'm not talking about physical eyesight. I'm talking about spiritual vision. And here's, here's where I want to go with this. Vision is the ability to see a preferred future that not only could happen, it should happen. Vision is the ability to see a preferred future that not only could happen, it should happen. Do you know why most people don't go to church? If you could sum it up in one word, the things that I've heard in, in, this, um, in this area, in, in Palestine, surrounding areas, and even when I was up in Arlington, before that I was in Austin, the number one reason people gave for not going to church. Well, that's a good one. Don't have time, but that's not number one. Irrelevance. Irre- it just doesn't matter. They see no connection between what you learn at church, what you do at church, and anything that would affect their lives. And so they, then they don't have time. Because if it was relevant, they'd probably make time. If they could see direct application to their lives, then church might be important. But church is irrelevant. And, and it just breaks my heart to think about that. The vast majority of churched teenagers, when they go off to college, they quit going to church. You know why they say? Irrelevance. And then even fewer college graduates go to church when they get out of school because they see church as irrelevant. Now, who do you think we're targeting? 
We say that we exist to reach people who are far from God, help them connect with God and with other people. We're targeting people who think church is irrelevant. And we've got to do some things um, if we're going to be relevant. So if we're, if we're going to talk about relevance today, then we've got to have a definition. Here's your definition. It's on your listening guide. Relevance is using what is cultural to say what is timeless. Relevance is using what is cultural to say what is timeless. And while we're giving out definitions, let me give you just a couple of definitions for free. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Now, let me say this. There is nothing wrong with tradition. I mean, when we talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper, those are two of my favorite traditions in the Christian church. Nothing wrong with tradition. It's the living faith of the dead. But there is a problem when we only carry on certain traditions because we've always done them that way and we have no idea behind the significance of them. That's called traditionalism. And traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. See the difference? Okay, that was free. We'll get back on topic here. Jesus said um, in John 5.17, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Now, I love the context of, of this verse, because what's going on is Jesus has just healed a dude on the Sabbath day. God forbid that we should heal somebody on the Sabbath day. And what happens is the, the religious leaders got angry. They said, how dare you work on the Sabbath day? Because now the Sabbath day was a tradition that God gave, and it is a good tradition. But they had added other rules to it, stuff like you can only walk a quarter of a mile or that's work. If, you're, if your ox falls in a ditch, you can pull it out, you know, but, but you can't ride it anywhere and you can't take it back home. You know, just stupid stuff that they had had these codes of conduct that they said everybody had to follow. And so when Jesus comes across this man who was who was uh, ill, Jesus healed him. And, and here's the cool thing about Jesus. He did this four or five different times on the Sabbath day. And he did it when the religious leaders were around. I mean, I think he was just uh, making a point. I think he knew this confrontation was going to happen. And that's why he healed them. Because then they got all upset about how dare you heal someone on the Sabbath day. And Jesus' response is this. He goes, well, you know, my father is always at work. And what he's saying is, my father is always spiritually involved in the lives of people. To this day. And he said, just because God said have a day of rest, he, he didn't tell us to quit being good to others. When we have the power to do good, he, he didn't tell us to take a break from being good, from helping people. And so <laughs> Jesus said, uh, when, he called, when he called God his father, he said, my father is at work. See, back in those days, the, the culture that he was in, you did not call God your father. You, you actually called him Yahweh, and Yahweh was actually spelled Y-W-H. There were no vowels in there because they didn't want to call him any name. They, going back to the, the, to the um, Ten Commandments, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. So they were so worried about taking God's name in vain that they wouldn't even call him any of the names that, that they had in the Old Testament. So they made up this name Yahweh that, that they thought was safe. So they put these barriers around the name so that you wouldn't cross that barrier and you wouldn't offend God. So when Jesus says, my father, they're like, oh, he's calling himself God. Let me let me show you, because some people will say Jesus never claimed to be God. They knew Jesus claimed to be God. Let me give you an example of that. Here in uh, John five eighteen, I gave you 17 there. This one's not on your listening guide. I'll go back to 17. But Jesus said to them, my father never stops working. And so I keep working too. verse 18. This made the Jews try still harder to kill him. They said, first, Jesus was breaking the law about the Sabbath day. Now he says that God is his own father, making himself equal with God. <gasps> That was just like the worst thing you could do. That was blasphemy. And in their tradition, if you blaspheme God, you were supposed to be stoned to death on the spot. So Jesus drops this nuclear bomb on their codes of conduct, on their traditions. And he says, you know, later on in this passage, he says, just so you get it, I and the father are one. <laughs> he was very clearly claiming to be God and they knew he was claiming to be God. And so Jesus said, if, if violating the traditions of men... If I have to do that to do what my father is doing, to be involved in my father's work, then I'm going to do it. You see, what we do a lot of times in churches is we dream up what we want to do for God and then we pray, oh, God, bless my dreams. 
Instead, that's backwards. Instead, we ought to pray that God would give us spiritual vision so we could see what God is doing and we could do what he's already blessing. Doesn't that make more sense? If God is always at work, he is at work today in the lives of people. And we have no spiritual vision is the reason we don't see it and join him. Because when you join where God is already at work, spiritual stuff happens immediately. I mean, there, there, there is, um, there's stuff that happens in lives. You see life change happen immediately where God is already at work. Well, let me give you um, an illustration. This picture here, um, I've got water in here. The water represents God's timeless truth. It never changes, hence its description as timeless. All right, you understand? God has at different times in history choreographed the events of history um, to get his timeless message across. That's what the Bible tells us in Hebrews. I think you have this. If not, you can look up on the screen. Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. Long ago, God spoke in many different ways to our fathers through the prophets in visions, dreams, and even face to face, telling them little by little about his plans. And then it goes on and it says, but now he has spoken to us through his son. Now, let's just imagine this timeline here. This is the timeline. Let's say this is the beginning of time. What the Bible tells us is there were times that, that God moved in history. He told armies to march so that he could get his timeless message across. There were times here that um, God allowed the children of Israel to go into slavery because they had not obeyed him. And he needed to remind them of his timeless message. There are all kinds of events that happen in history where God choreographed those events. The, the, the uh, birth of David. Um, the birth of Saul, he choreographed those events so that he could pour his timeless message into that point in time. But the Bible says in the Old Testament, way back here, God spoke to us in visions and dreams, sometimes face to face with prophets. But it says, but now he's spoken to us through his son. So this is the birth of Jesus. We'll call this Christmas. And this event, this one event separates B.C., from A.D., one of the coolest things in, in, in Christianity to me is that Jesus is the only founder of any religion who the calendar was split into by his birth. Right. Before Christ, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. That's what A.D. means. And so the Bible tells us you got this verse, I believe, on there. Galatians 4, 4. But when the right time finally came, God sent his own son. He came as the son of a human mother and lived under the Jewish law. Jesus was God, but he gave up all of that stuff associated with God. Then God put his timeless truth into a man with skin on. And he took his son and he poured the essence of who he was, his timeless message into this son. And then he he put him right smack dab in the middle of of the ancient world in a Hebrew culture. You see, God didn't mess up and God wasn't late bringing Jesus. He choreographed the events. If you want to if you want to study all this, look at the major prophecies. There's about 50 major prophecies in the Old Testament. And uh, mathematicians have done the probability that any human being could have fulfilled, you know, just five of those prophecies. And it's something like uh, 10 to the 129th power, you know, 129 zeros back there that that any one human being could have fulfilled even five of those prophecies. You take Jesus, he fulfills all 50 in just the right time, in the fullness of time. God choreographed Jesus Christ coming and splitting history into A.D. and B.C. And so God was not in a hurry. Just the right time, he put Jesus in, in Mary's womb. And when you look at the life of Jesus, you discover what it means to be relevant. Because Jesus was a Jew. What language do you think he spoke? The Jewish language. Um, what kind of church did he go to? Synagogue, a Jewish church. What kind of traditions did he learn? Jewish traditions. He doesn't know about football and baseball. He didn't live at this time. He learned the language. He was taught in the synagogues. He related to people. What kind of culture was it? It was an agricultural culture. You know, there were she- there were shepherds, the um, sheep herders. What starts that? Shepherds. And, and there were um, farmers there. Jesus was a carpenter. He learned the trade of his father. And so in, in the fullness of time, God put him in this Hebrew culture and Jesus did things and talked about things that were relevant in that day. 
Can you imagine Jesus busting onto the scene in a pimped up ride? You know, when everybody walks around or, or they ride a camel or a donkey. I mean, talk about freaking them out. If you've ever seen any of those Back to the Future movies, you know, when uh, when Michael J. Fox goes back in time and he has that space suit on, he's like, ah, aliens. That's what would happen if Jesus busts in, you know, some Hummer that's got all of these video things on there. It's going to freak the people out. Jesus didn't do that. Now, he lived and he related to people in the culture of that day. Newsflash. That's what we're supposed to do today. We're supposed to do the same thing in our generation. So if we're going to follow Christ's example, we've got to do two things. Jesus spent his time on earth here doing two things. First thing is he came to build a bridge relationally. Build a bridge relationally. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that was lost, that, that which was lost. Now, when you play hide and go seek, at least if you're not a parent, <laughs> what do you do? See, because when my kids were smaller, they would go hide. And it's like we played hide and go seek for hours and hours every day. And I would just get bored with it. And so I'd be watching TV, you know, sports would come on or, or I'd be reading the paper or somebody would call. And I'd forget to go look for my kids. And my kids inform me, that is not how you play the game, Dad. <laughs> And, you know, they were disappointed because when they're smaller, the kids love to be found. Now they're a little older and they're getting better at hiding and they don't like to be found. But when they were little, they loved to be found. And, and so they would they would be disappointed if I hid and they couldn't find me. So I was supposed to whistle. Daddy, let me know where you are. And if they were hiding, I would say, Hannah. And she'd go, what? <laughs> and I'd say, where are you? Right here. And she just keep talking. And when I would find her, she would giggle because it is cool to be found. And I don't know if you've ever been lost somewhere, but I've watched these these weather channel, you know, storm stories and stuff like that. There was a story of incredibly experienced hikers uh, up in, in Seattle, Washington. They went out on a mountain and uh, they left. It was 75 degrees. No one predicted the two feet of snow they were going to get that night. And these guys were stranded in one tent for almost 72 hours. They were in shorts and T-shirts, but they did have the nice sleeping bags, the big mummy sleeping bags. And so there were five of them, two dads and their sons. And they huddled up in there and they ate all that. They were just supposed to be there one night. They ate all their food for one night. And and the rescuers got so close to them the first day. But because of the blizzard, it was a whiteout. They had to turn around and go back because they thought they were going to get lost. You think those guys weren't happy whenever they were found? When they finally heard the helicopter, because it snowed for almost the entire 72 hours. Couldn't even get the helicopters up there because incredible blizzard conditions. When they heard the chopper, I mean, these guys said, oh, we were so relieved because we really, the dads were talking to their sons and saying, son, it's been great knowing you. And preparing their sons to die. I can't imagine looking at Caleb and saying, babe, we're probably not getting out of this. And to think I'm going to die. And then to hear the helicopter. People were excited when Jesus found them. He said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. And lost people are excited when they're found. The problem is in our society, a lot of people don't even know they're lost. But when they're found, incredible things happen. Um, And the, the deal is, Jesus has always been seeking. He found Peter and Andrew and James and John fishing. You can read about them in the New Testament, first four books of the New Testament. He found Matthew in a tax collector's booth. He found Zacchaeus in a tree. He found a woman at the well and he found a blind man beside the road. And he found me in a little Baptist church 35 years ago on a Sunday night. Jesus is the original seeker. He seeks us long before we ever seek him. And if you've ever been lost, then you know what it's like to be found. Now, something interesting happens in John 14. Talk to you about John 5 when he heals the, the person on the on the Sabbath in John 14, Jesus is approaching his death and he wants to prepare his followers, his disciples for that time when he's going to be gone. So he's talking to him and Philip, one of his followers, been with him for three years. Philip goes, OK, great. You're going to die. You're going to be gone. You know, um, before you go, could you show us the father? And, and Jesus says in John 14, nine, anyone has seen me, has seen the father. So why are you asking me to see him now? I don't think Jesus was sarcastic. I just can't help but be sarcastic because that's what I do to my son all the time. And he does it back to me. You know, they reflect, you know, all that stuff. So. So why do you want to see him? You know, because 
The other day, Caleb did something and Janie goes, you are your father. (laughs) And actually, it wasn't something good. You know, I don't know what he did, but it was like, oh, man, you know, that's probably not the trait I need to pass on. And, And I think it's cool whenever people tell me I'm like my dad. My dad's human, messes up a lot. But but when they say you're like your dad, I take that as a compliment. And and Jesus is like, okay, you know, just just a few books earlier, you know, a few chapters earlier in the Bible, I told you I and the Father are one. And he's he's saying, if you've seen me, you have seen my Father. And so Philip's go. He's saying, hey Philip, I'm God with skin on. Check me out. This is what my father would be doing if he was here on earth, because I see what my father's doing. I join him in what he's doing. Do you know why he could say that? Because God took his timeless message, his timeless truth, and poured it into a man named Jesus. And we could observe what he did here on earth and we can know what relevance is and what God would want us to do. And I want you to think about what did Jesus spend, the type of people that Jesus spent his time with? Who did he talk to? Who did he hang out with? Just give me some audience participation. Anybody and everybody, but give me specific sinners. That's, that's good. That's all of us. <laughs> prostitutes. There's one. Oh, dear God. Clergy can't be seen with prostitutes. The son of God can. Somebody else. Give me one. Tax collectors. Thieves. Murderers. We should have had that back there. The sick, the hurting, prostitutes, folks caught in adultery, divorced people, uneducated people, poor people, rich people, Romans, Greeks, Jews, Ethiopians, Asians. The color of your skin, the condition of your heart, your health, the amount of money in your pocket didn't matter to Jesus. Because, April, you said sinners, since we're all sinners, we're all lost. And we all matter to God. And so Jesus came to hang out with those type of people. He came to build bridges relationally to all people. The only folks who ever experienced the wrath of Jesus were the religious leaders. And we'll talk about them more in just a minute. So Jesus' first purpose was to build a bridge relationally between himself and the people God created. Second thing that Jesus did on this earth, he came to turn on a light spiritually. I want you to think about the spiritual condition just of Anderson County. Let's just go, you know, within driving distance. Spiritual condition of Anderson County. Would you say on the whole that Anderson County is has a burning bright light spiritually? Or would you say there's a lot of darkness around here? A lot of darkness. I want you to watch this video. The question is, at the man on the street interview, the question is, how do you get to heaven? Listen to these responses. How does a person get to heaven? A person dies and goes to heaven. This world, nobody's going to heaven. I don't know. Never really thought about it. How does a person get to heaven? I would like to think it's because they're decent human beings. How does a person get to heaven? Not the way I'm getting there. That's for sure. <laughs> That's a tough one. I don't know. Hopefully, doing the right things. <laughs> How does a person get to heaven? Actually, you don't get there because you're already there. It's already equal. Every day, you got day and you got night. So, you're in heaven and hell all the time. So, how are you going to get where you already are? How does a person get to heaven? How does a person get to heaven? I have no idea. I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm not religious. I'm sorry. <laughs> Heaven's inside us already. So I don't think you get to heaven. I think that's something that you just recognize inside yourself and inside other people. To heaven? Not, not the good old way of the purgatory. These days it's like good deeds. How does a person get to heaven? I don't know that there really is one. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I guess that's one of the reasons you go to heaven when you work hard. You know, the easy answer is be a good Christian because I'm Christian. You could be a good Jew. You could be a good person of Islamic faith. doesn't matter. How does a person get to heaven? Through the front door. Who opens that front door? Who's ever guarding heaven's gate at the time that you arrive? You go right through the front door if they let you in, and if they don't let you in, turn your way and you try another day. How does a person get to heaven? Uh, asking Jesus Christ in their heart. 
Now, when I watched this, I thought that could happen in Palestine. If you were to go at the Dogwood Trails this next weekend and we were to interview people, and that may be one of the questions that we ask them, is how do you get to heaven just to see what, what the spiritual condition of our city is. John 1, 4 and, 5 says, 4 and 5 says, The Word was the source of life, and this life brought light to people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has never put it out. I want you to think this through. At that time in history, the right time is what we talked about on the timeline. The lights had all gone out. It was a, a time of intense religion. And would you say that we also live in a time of intense religion? I mean, the one guy said, just be a good Jew, be a good Muslim, be a good Christian. And uh, we'll get into that. A lot of people said, be good enough. That's how you get to heaven. Well, since no one is good, how good is good enough? I mean, people seem to think that God has this scale. And if if your bad deeds are here and your good deeds are here, and if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you get to go to heaven. But but none of us are good. And, and we'll talk about that another day. How do you know when it's good enough? You don't. I had some folks standing at my front door one time and I said, if you were to die tonight, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven? They weren't Christians, obviously. And they said, you can never know. And I said, how depressing. Because the Bible says these things I've written to you who know the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I said, I know because I followed what's in this book. Oh, well, that book's not enough. You've got to have this book and this book and this book. I said, sorry, dude. I'm going to follow the one who raised from the dead, who's no longer dead. Your religious founder, he doesn't have uh, the timeline split in two, B.C., A.D. Your religious leader, he's still in the tomb. In fact, your religious leader, I've read about him. I've studied about him. He was an immoral man. And he's still dead. So why do you want to follow a dead guy? I just don't understand that. At that time in history, all the lights were out. The, the people who were religious were building walls and not bridges. They were, they were actually putting up barriers to keep people out. The temple, there were walls outside the temple to keep Gentiles from coming into a Jewish place. And then inside the temple, there were walls to keep women from, from um, where men could go. And then inside that, there were places that the good Jews could go, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that the normal Jews couldn't go. And the Bible tells us that Jesus came to tear down walls and build bridges. Would you say that we live in a time where most religious people are building bridges relationally or were they building walls? We'll talk more about that in just a second. Jesus said that the, the religious leaders were blind guides leading the blind. And he said that because they didn't have the light, you know, Jesus came to turn on the light spiritually because they didn't have the light. He said, whenever you convince someone to follow your religious ways, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. Did you say that's pretty strong words? Jesus called the religious leaders snakes, vipers, hypocrites, and whitewashed tombs. He said on, on the outside, you look good. A whitewashed tomb looks great on the outside because it's been painted white. On the inside, you know what it is? It's full of dead men's bones. I don't know if you've been around many dead men's bones, but it stinks. And Jesus is saying on the inside, you're rotten. You stink. You're leading people to hell. Jesus came to change things because people needed light. And I want you to compare the, the, the religious leaders' method to Jesus' method. The religious leaders, what they tended to do, what they tended to do was they tended to teach God's law. They knew God's law, but they complicated it. They said, here's God's law, but here's 1,500 uh, 1, other things, codes of conduct that we have established that you better follow because we see our codes of conduct just as important as the law of God. That's real dangerous. And, and by the way, you can tell when, when someone is a cult leader, when they start to say, my teaching is on par with Scripture. When somebody starts doing that, you run from, from that type of teaching. Because Scripture is our authority. Now, they said these codes of conduct, you've got to follow them to be a good religious person. And if you don't follow these codes of conduct, we're going to kick you out. And, and the other problem was these religious leaders only hung out with the religious elite. So you better act like me and talk like me and do the things I do or don't even bother coming to my church. That's the message that that they used to send. You know, I've been in churches and I said several times in, in different churches that I want to put up, you know, those marquees out there, the signs out there. I told some deacons one time, I said, you might as well go out on the sign and put go to hell, everybody, because that that's what this church is is saying by their actions. We're going to build our walls and you can go to hell and we don't care. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus cared for the down and the out. 
Jesus, he simplified the law. In fact, when he was asked, he said, I can sum all of the Bible up in two things. Love God, love people. Jesus was full of grace. The religious people were full of judgment. Grace won out. Jesus came to tear down the barriers and to make it easier for people to see the light. And then he went to people who needed it the most. He hung out with the scum of society. Prostitutes, lepers, murderers. He built bridges and turned on lights. And the world has never been the same. So which do you want to be like? Do you want to be like the religious leaders or like Jesus? As for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. Part of the reason we started this church was we said we can no longer build walls. We've got to build bridges. We can't have barriers that keep people from coming to Christ. We've got to tear down those barriers. We about evaluate everything we do here at New Life um, by asking the question, will it build bridges and will it turn on lights? Why are we going to the Dogwood Trails this next week? Why are we wearing these shirts? Why are we handing out the cards? You have those invite cards that tell you a little bit about it. That, um, well, those, they, they don't tell you about the series. They give you a map on the back. We're going to send out postcards to everybody that we have on file from the last um, from the Hot Pepper Festival. We're going to mail them cards. And on there it tells a little bit about it. In, in, uh, in God's economy, F has gotten a raw deal. F stands for forgiveness in God's alphabet. And it's going to have a map to the church. We're going to talk about the series. We're going to do this stuff. Why do we do that? Do you think that forgiveness is a relevant topic that somebody needs to hear? Oh, yeah. They need to be forgiven by God. But there's probably a lot of us here that need to forgive someone. In fact, I just had an episode in, in the last few days. Um, I picked up these T-shirts and, and uh, then I had something happen where I got ticked off. Somebody made me mad. And the next day I open up the Bible and I'm reading in, in Matthew chapter five. I just I'm reading through the New Testament, reading Matthew chapter five and Sermon on the Mount. And it said, blessed is this, blessed is this, blessed is this. And then the one that just jumped out and smacks me upside the head is blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And I'm like, quit, God, I want to be mad. He hurt my feelings. I'm a big boy. <laughs> and I told I told Caleb and I told Janie, I said, I've, I've got to go ask for forgiveness for my attitude. And Janie goes, good, because I didn't know how we were going to be able to wear those T-shirts if we were mad. I hate it when I'm wrong. <laughs> and I told Caleb, I told him that. I said, I hate it when I'm wrong. And I said, I'm good at being wrong. I've practiced for 41 years. I'm an excellent person at being wrong. Why, why do we do these things? Why do we do this series? Why are we doing a series on lust after that? To build bridges and turn on lights. Why do we start Celebrate Recovery? Celebrate Recovery is every Sunday night from 5 to 7. Tonight we're going to do some different things. We're going to split into different groups and have multiple groups. We're going to have lots of food. Jeff was telling me about the chicken and there's some chicken and rice, but there's also chicken parts. Why do we do that? Why do we start Celebrate Recovery? To build bridges and turn on lights. Why are we starting MOPS, Mothers of Preschoolers, this, uh, this Tuesday? It meets once a month from 9.30 to 11.30. Why are we starting MOPS? Because we want to build bridges and turn on lights. Why did we start this, this children's worship where we use really relevant stuff down there with our kids so that you can come up here and not have to worry about your kids? And if you bring your kids up here, that's, that's not a big deal. But why do we do stuff down there? Kids are technologically savvy nowadays. Did you realize that? <laughs> They know more about your computer and your telephone and your VCR, if you still have that, or your DVD player than you do. You don't know how to program it, just ask them. So we do stuff that's relevant to kids. We did that to build bridges and turn on lights. That's why we do small groups. That's why we do fellowship meals. Next week, we're going to have uh, Mexican food right after church. And if you want to bring something, bring anything Mexican. We're going to bring out the tables and we're going to fellowship because we want to build bridges with one another and we want to turn on lights spiritually. We want to be the church where if someone is down and out and they're desperate and they need help, that we become the first church that they think of. That's where I want to go because they'll never turn me away. Because that's a church that dispenses grace. And what I need is grace, not judgment. When a cop pulls you over for speeding, do you want judgment or do you want mercy? Mercy. mercy. I'm guilty. <laughs> Most of the time, I am speeding. We're coming home from Borger, 500 miles. Got all the way to Corsicana, man, and I'm flying. Not intentionally, but, you know, the foot just gets heavier after 400 miles. And, uh, and we come by this policeman. I'm like, oh, dude, I haven't had a ticket in over 10 years. It's more luck than it is, you know, lawful driving. And so... He turns around. And I said, oh, I'm nailed. Oh, well, I'm guilty. You know, and I start going, Lord, help him have mercy on me. <laughs> and uh, and I'm going here. And then this 
dipstick truck didn't see him. He goes flying by me and I'm going, praise the Lord. And and amazingly, though, the policeman, because then he sees him, he looks up in his rearview mirror, he stops and we're going side by side down 45. And the the policeman follows us for like uh, a mile. We're about to come to the exit. And I'm in a rental van and one of the blinkers doesn't work. And it's the right blinker where I've got the exit. I'm going speeding, you know, blinker doesn't work. I'm going to get nailed. And and then, you know, just grace of God (laughs) had to be the grace of God. Somebody comes flying up north on 45. He whips around and gets them. And I'm just going. Jenny said, you going to drive the speed, speed limit the rest of the way home? I said, yep. <laughs> yes, I am, because I, I don't want judgment. I want mercy. And we want to be a church that builds bridges and turns on light and just full of mercy, full of grace, because people are drawn. Who, who did the scum of society, who would they rather hang out with, Jesus or the religious leaders? Jesus, because he never turned them away. He was full of grace. He would say... Go and sin no more to the woman caught in adultery. She knew she was guilty. What she needed was grace and the power not to sin anymore. And Jesus was just filled with grace. Our job is to do the same thing as Jesus. We're to take the timeless truth and uh, and pour it into the best way to reach our city for Christ. We're supposed to figure out what's relevant today. Relevance is using what is cultural to say what is timeless. Our whole deal is to manage, to monitor and steward this timeless truth. It's what will be judged on when we stand before God. Now, in order to stay relevant, we've got to do three things. First thing we've got to do is we have to learn to distinguish between what is cultural and what is timeless. That's the first question we've got to ask. What is cultural and what is timeless? That means understand the difference between the water and the pitcher. Because here's what happens many times. If we use this pitcher long enough... We begin to think that the picture is timeless and not what's in it. We get confused between the message and the method. And if we stay confused, we become irrelevant. So I want you to think, I want you to look at these things. I've got some pictures up here, but to make it easier, we're going to put the picture up here on the screen. When you see this first picture, go ahead, Andrew, of this. What do you think? Now, I'm not asking you to be judgmental. I'm asking you to think about someone who's far from God. They drive by this building. They look at this building. What are the first things that come to their mind? Old, maybe rich, historical, historical marker. I know churches that can't change anything in their building because they've been declared historical markers. And they're proud of the fact that they they are a historical marker and people are dying and going to hell and their church is about to close up. But they're a historical marker. Praise God. Now. Don't get me wrong. Again, I said there's nothing wrong with tradition. Here's what I believe happened. When that church started, I believe that God poured his timeless truth into that church. Because I believe somebody was really radical. When you start a church, people tell you you're nuts. You can't make that work here. You're crazy. You're going to go out and do what? You're going to build a building. You've got to be insane. So they went out. I believe that God poured his timeless truth into that. And if we're just talking generally, not specifics, just generally. Probably what happened to that church is they fell in love with certain programs that they were doing. And they kept doing them for about 50 or 60 or 70 years. And what worked 50 or 60 years ago. The method no longer works today. And so my parents are in a church like that. My parents, they've done like 35 or 40 funerals in the last year and zero weddings. Do the math. When we go, we, we are the young people. When I go and visit my parents. And my dad's told me, he's like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to have to close the doors before long because... We can't even, most of us can't even walk from the parking lot to the church anymore. And it's just a sad deal to me. And Dad doesn't understand at all what I'm doing. He thinks I'm nuts. He's told me that. You're nuts. He doesn't like what we're doing. And I said, Daddy, you're going to go to heaven. So my job's not to try to reach you, Dad. My job's to try to reach people who are going to hell. Because I've got to reach people in my generation. Now, look at this, this church. 
And see, this next one. What do you think of, if, if you're a non-Christian, someone far from God, you drive by this church, what, you, what comes to mind? Architecture. I mean, that's not bad. No steeple. Can you have a church with no steeple? We used to have a church in the old pizza parlor, you know, Tammy's 57 Heaven. And one of the things we used to say is no steeple, just a Chevy. We had the pink Chevy. That was our steeple. <laughs> now, at least they're making some effort, right? We've, we've moved forward. And I have no doubt that at some point when God called these people to start this church, that he poured his timeless message into the people who started this church. And I have no doubt that they were reaching out to people for God. But 20 years from now, is that going to be in date? No. And I'm not saying the building has to be everything. You can have the oldest. Look where we are. This building's 70 years old. We're on the top floor. You got to be in shape just to get here or you're in better shape after you get here. I mean, it's not the building, but you understand, I'm just talking in generalities. If you're someone who's far from God, no doubt that that God has poured his timeless truth into these people. But if they become a closed society and they start building walls instead of building bridges, what's going to happen to that church in 20 years? They're going to be declining. Did you know, I think the numbers are like 95 percent. I'll have to check this for sure. 95% of the churches in America are plateaued. That means they're not growing or they're declining. It means there's 5% that are building bridges and turning on lights. Now, look at this next building. If you are a non-Christian and you're driving by, what are you thinking when you see this building? Movie theater. Movie theater, party, fun, woohoo, good time. This is actually a mall and there is a church meeting in this mall. And I think what God has done is God has poured his timeless truth, his timeless message into a group of people who said, you know, we want to reach people for God no matter how we do it. And uh, and I want you just to think these three pictures. Can you go back to the first one, Drew? If you just what you know, again, not trying to be judgmental, but just what you know, if you are looking at this church, would you say that the message that that church building conveys is service as in they're known in the community for doing things to reach people who are far from God or serve us, as in we're a uh, uh, country club mentality where I come and sit and you you give me a little bit of scriptural knowledge and that's good. And you meet my needs and you meet my family's needs and you do everything for me, pastor and staff, because I give. And if you don't, I'm, I'm sorry, I get carried away. Now, does this building, does, I really didn't intend to say all that. Does this building convey service or serve us? Okay, next building. Does this building convey service or serve us? This is okay. It depends on what goes on inside, but at least they're making an effort. Next building. Does this convey service or serve us? Service. I will do whatever I can to tear down the walls so that I can build a bridge to you and turn on the light spiritually. That's what God has called us to do. And that's what I intend to spend the rest of my years doing. What does a missionary do? I mean, we studied the last three weeks. We studied about India. We studied about Ecuador. We studied about Uganda. What does a missionary do? They don't drive the pimped up ride there. They study the culture. They learn the language. And they do things to build bridges. That's what we're called to do in Palestine. And how many churches are doing that? How many churches exist to build bridges to people who are far from God? Five percent. Not enough. I'll say it that way. Not enough. And so we cannot become irrelevant. That is not an option. God is a creative God. And one of the ways that he's created us in his image is he's given us the ability to be creative. But did you know creativity is hard work? It is so much easier to go the path of least resistance And not be creative. But when we do that, we slide towards irrelevance. Number two, the second thing we got to do. Never assume what worked yesterday should work today. Never assume what worked yesterday should work today. What many Christians do is they figure that a program that worked a few years ago should work till Jesus comes. It'd be like me saying to Nathan, Nathan's our drummer. Nathan 19, right? It'd be like me saying to Nathan... Nathan, you know, I was in youth ministry for 19 years. 
I, I was pretty successful in youth ministry. We reached a lot of kids. So you need to take this program that I used to do and only this program. And you will never be successful unless you use this program to reach your generation for Christ. You're a fool if you don't use it, Nathan. That's arrogance to think that I know the only way to reach people. Because God has called Nathan and Donald to reach people in their generation. When we're talking about um, reaching our generation for Christ, serving God in this generation, which generation are we talking about? Mine? Yeah. Nathan's? Yeah. Caleb is 11? Yeah. There's a small group of 11-year-old boys that we're trying to reach. Alex leads that small group. We're trying to reach that generation. But there's also kids in our nursery down there. And we're supposed to reach that generation too. We have to be a church that adapts and changes to reach all the generations or we will soon slide towards irrelevance. And it's a short step from irrelevance to incompetence and a short, shorter step from incompetence to death. And that's unacceptable. Third thing we've got to do is communicate content for the sake of application and not just information. Application, not just information. God wants the Bible to transform our lives, not to inform our lives. In our children's ministry, we've got to take the timeless truth of God and pour it into something that's relevant for them. So in our toddlers, in our babies, we don't talk to them about David and Bathsheba and lust and adultery and stuff like that. Because it's not appropriate. What we do is we talk to them about God is a good God and He loves us. And we sing happy songs. And we have fun and we smile. And we give them hugs because that's what God wants us to do. G-Force in our children's ministry. Oh my goodness. We have all kinds of drama and video. And we, we um, build sets down there. Like this, the series they just finished was a game show. And so they had this game show set when they come in down there. And they had drama that, that related to the game show. The series before that was superheroes. And there was like um, the, the superhero was Captain Loves a Lot or something like that. And she came in with a cape on, you know. And I mean, just stuff that the kids love. We do that. So that we can be relevant to that generation. Now, we get to teenagers. When we get a youth ministry established here, we're going to talk about love and sex and lust and adultery and, you know, all of that stuff, because that's relevant topics to them. You understand what we're talking about. We're going to talk appropriately to every age group. Um, what I want you to know each week is the information. What I want you to do each week is the application. So the question we ask all the time, all the time, what do we want them to know? What do we want them to do? That's what we ask when we're preparing messages. So what I want you to do today. I want you to ask yourself two questions. First question in your mind, I want you to say, am I building bridges relationally with people who are far from God? That's a real simple question. And it has a yes or no answer. <laughs> There's no. Uh, well, maybe. Yes or no. Second, are you turning on light spiritually? For those people you're reaching out to. Yes or no question. If the answer is yes, you have been, then just I want you to take a second in your mind. And I want you to say to God, God, help me to keep on doing what you're blessing. If the answer is no to those questions, then I want you to say to God, God, I've messed up. Forgive me and give me a heart for people who are far from God. Now, I want you to take your um, your uh, registration cards. Next week, we start this forgiveness series. Do you know anyone who could benefit from hearing God's message on forgiveness? Three weeks that we're going to be talking about forgiveness. Next week, we're going to talk about collateral damage. What unforgiveness does to people. And two weeks after that, we're going to talk about how to forgive and how you move on beyond things that have hurt you. Because let's be honest, forgiveness is not natural. What we want to do is hold on. Forgiveness is supernatural. So what I want you to do is I want you to fill out the front of your registration card. And every week, this is the application. This is why I do this. I tell you what I want you to know, but then I tell you what I want you to do. On the back of your card, turn that over. And if you're willing to build a bridge relationally and invite someone, that's why we gave you. That's an invite card. <laughs> Hence the name. You take that card, the, the forgiveness, the real F word card, and you say, hey, our church is doing something on forgiveness I think it'll be pretty cool. Would you come check it out? And then you might even, I've, I've done this before. I've said, hey man, would you come? <laughs> this was back in a very traditional church when, you know, once a year we could do a very untraditional service because it was the youth service. And so I used to invite my friends, folks my age, I'd say, dude, we're going to do something radical at our church this week. Would you come? I want to get your opinion. 
I wasn't being false. I wanted to know. But it also gave me an opportunity to go back and say, hey, man, what'd you think? Dude, that was weird. You know, I've heard that. And I've heard that was pretty cool. So invite them. If you'd be willing to do that, here's what I want you to do. I want you to write one name. Perry and I were talking about this this week. If we want to grow the church, the way to grow the church is through you guys. I mean, if we may mail out about 200 postcards, we've got about 200, 250 names or something like that that we're going to mail out postcards to. Generally, you get about one half of one percent return off of the, the cards. Now, that, that represents some lives, so I'm, I'm not going to discount that. But the number one way people have come to this church, as we approach our four-year anniversary this summer, we're going to talk more about this, is through relationships. Because you think about it, those of you who are here, Somebody invited you. Even those of you who've been here for three and a half years, I invited you. When we decided to start a church, we decided on a Tuesday night and had our first church service on that Saturday night, and I'm calling, hey, we're starting a church. You want to come? And I think 17 people were there, including children. <laughs> you got to invite somebody. If you'd be willing, write that down. The reason I want to, to have those names is because I'm going to spend time praying this week. And I'm asking you to pray too that God will go ahead of you to that person and work in their heart so that they'll be receptive to coming. And the way we do this is the cards. There's, there's two baskets at the back. One of them is the bigger basket. And there's already some yellow cards in there. Put your yellow card there. The other basket is is uh, for our tithes and offerings. And we never expect visitors to give. If you become a member, then we expect you to give. I mean, that's just part of the deal. We'll be real upfront with you. Because this is part of our gift to you who are visiting. And it's part of our vision for the future is we're going to build this church. And we're going to reach people who are far from God. And we're going to be a grace dispensing church. It's going to start with this series, this forgiveness, the real F word series. And uh, we want you to invite some folks. Now, I want you to tell God what you've done, whatever your decision is, and ask him to work in the hearts of those people. Ten seconds. Do that just in your mind. Lord, we want to do this Christian life like you did it here on earth. We want to build bridges and turn on lights. Help us start doing that today. We pray that you'd bring some new visitors next week and you would turn on the light for them spiritually. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.